True and false suffering. Freud, among others, pointed out that there is true and false suffering. The breaking of the images abolished our false pain and makes way for the true to appear. False suffering is a defense against the vigor and tumult of experience. Our true suffering is the shared lot of humanity. We love and we want to be loved in return. We have to eat when we are hungry. We thrive on a freedom from danger that is rare. These are the needs of life, yet they are unsaidly. Wars, strides over cities, famine, earthquake, and illness revenge us. Our false suffering appears when we add unnecessary pains to our necessary ones, when we become suspicious and cruel because our affection has not been returned, when we become greedy because we were hungry once, when we envy those who do things better than we do. If our heart becomes a consuming passion for revenge, unnecessary suffering has grown pathological. There are times when we take the true irritating pain of life and build a strange pair around it, a symptom that seems to an outsider aesthetically interesting but fundamentally redundant. There is woman who in her guest for perfection must eat a pound of chocolate at supper and throw up before bedtime. Or the man who rebellion and achievement having found a stasis in his soul refuses to complete his doctor dissertation, but remains a student all his days. Destined refines us so that our pain becomes more and more authentic. As we flee it less, it, it touches us more terribly and more intimately. We grow, we grow interested in the pain that is so interested in us. True suffering is modest. It doesn't mean things, it is things. Well, a woman discovered that her boyfriend had had an affair. Before that moment, she hadn't ever been sure she cared about the man, but now she did care. Either it's all going to break into pieces, she said, or we're going over the waterfall together. We're going far deeper into the relationship than we intended. Either way is terrifying. And either way, she would have more life. To find out how delicate her emotions were and how much she wanted the relationship to go on was itself worthwhile. Her helplessness was more interesting than her indifference had been was becoming even more interesting than the relationship. She now understood that her experience mattered, her raw pain, her hopes, the stuff of her days. Is this, is this true or false suffering that she had? Maybe he is going to explain it in the next paragraph. I think it's Kim reading. True suffering drives us into new regions. If, if well, what I just, my thought was that, um, I mean, I've certainly, I think probably been in that relationship of wanting something when I found out I couldn't have it, that kind of thing. And that seems like false suffering. Yeah. 
True suffering drives us into new regions. If we escape from our suffering too easily or by sleight of hand, we are disappointed. We feel that we have evaded some challenge, missed the gift and the pain. It is as if death, destiny had not marked us for anything real and we merely scurry at the edges of life. Henry James in his story, <laughs> The Beast in the Jungle, tells the tale of a man who realizes at last that his great destiny was that nothing would happen to him and that he had failed to notice the woman who loved him. Rilke in the original version of the 10th Duoology, I don't know how to pronounce that, put it this way. How dare you will be to me then? your nights of anguish. Why did I kneel more deeply to accept you in inconsolable? Inconsolable. Inconsolable, thank you, sisters. And surrendering, surrendering, lose myself in your loosened hair. How we squander our hours of pain, how we gaze beyond them into the bitter duration to see if they have an end. Though they are really seasons of us, our winter enduring foliage, palms, meadows, our inborn landscape, where birds and reed dwelling creatures are at home. So I think it's Lisa. Betrayal. However inevitable our downward journey, when we are pitched into night and it's suffering, we feel aggrieved. Everything we relied on has been snatched away. Many religions have myths of betrayal at their core. Judas, we are told, sold Jesus for silver. The Buddha survived an assassination attempt, and Osiris was murdered by his brother. Such stories help us to accommodate to our own losses. With the death of the founder of a religion, the light seems to have withdrawn back into the realm it came from, leaving the people without warmth and direction. The grief of that huge absence asks for an answer, an explanation. To blame Judith, Judas for the death of Jesus, for example, is to become like the husband who blames the singer in the band for stealing his wife. A sense of having been betrayed makes a pattern of the enormity of the grief. Survivor guilt seems to have the same purpose. A man whose wife died of a heart attack reacted by blaming himself. He went over and over the day of the dead, watching her fall on the grass beside some oak tree, an oak tree, running to her, picking her up, checking her breathing. The loss was truly out of his control, but he felt driven to find out what his error had been. His thought returned again and again to his guilt like an animal coming to shelter. The guilt restored, restored a sense of order to a torn world. As he said, if I'm to blame, at least someone is responsible. This hunger for a comprehensible pattern is a source of the feeling of intimacy and complicity that sometimes appears between betrayer and betrayed. The sense of having been betrayed and the sense of having done wrong are very close. A woman has decided to end a long marriage because she feels that she is not seen or respected enough. Indeed, her husband is a bully. 
belittling the children, smashing furniture when things don't go his way. But at the same time, she has been trying to con conceive a baby and thinks she might be pregnant. As Borges said, love is a religion with a fallible God. Each of her feelings is a betrayal of the opposite. Her marriage is a betrayal of herself. Her desire to end the marriage, a betrayal of family. What I, I kind of like about this paragraph and tell me if I'm not picking up on it right is um, how difficult it is to hold opposites. And as someone who struggles with ambivalence a lot, I really resonate with you. It, there's just so many opposites. To hold on to what, Lisa? Uh, the difficulty of holding opposites at the same time. Op, like she wants to get out of her marriage, but she also doesn't want to betray her family. She can't have both in some ways. Yet, I guess to get to the end of the problem, she'll have to hold both long enough to figure out a solution. That is it. Uh, I've been holding two things at once for a couple of weeks and it's miserable. <laughs> <laughs> really miserable. It's hard. Yeah. You mean wanting something and not wanting something? Yeah, yeah. Is it ever not the case? That it's not difficult? I, yeah, no, no, I no. Is it ever not the case that, that uh, there's like positives and negatives, costs and benefits to any decision you make? There's, no, gr there's grief, there's, there's happiness. And the yeah. thing you don't choose also. Right. And I think I've come to sort of the realization that there is no wrong choice. There's merely a choice. That's it. And you don't know. Yeah. You know, we were talking about photography the other day, yesterday, and, you know, you push the button in anticipation of something that's going to happen in the next instant or the next second. So you don't know what's going to happen. It might be great. It might be terrible. Yeah. But you take that chance. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, your intuition tells you, oh, maybe this is going to be okay or good or like when you get something at the grocery store, maybe this time it will taste good. Yeah. Many times it seems that there is no way to move forward in our lives except through betrayal. Along with our suffering comes an awakening to contradiction, a discovery that we can no longer be quiet, sure of our motives or even our intentions. And so we love, we collide, collide in our own betrayal. I think the word is collude. Collude, okay. When two uh, people collude, it's like to do something, uh, they collude to a uh, mischievous deed. Not a positive word to collude. Death itself is a kind of forgetting, an infidelity. The planet forgets us just as we are unfaithful to our first love. Betrayal tells us that the world is capacious and strange, more dangerous and more fascinating than we had thought. Life has seduced us, and we shall, no doubt, die of this seduction. Yet it is marvelous, too, and if we do not let ourselves be seduced by existence, there is nowhere for the finger of eternity to seize us. That's quite, quite a <laughs> sentence, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. 
that you have to be holding on to something that you feel is precious in order to be taken away. If you, like, could you execute someone who was who was uh, who wanted to kill themselves? You know what I mean? You you couldn't in a sense because you would just be fulfilling their wish. Right. Daniel, maybe one size bigger would be helpful, at least to me. Thank you. Was that Emily who read? Yeah, it might yeah. be you. Okay. The positive side of betrayal is that it, oh, Lisa, if you didn't figure this out, he's a therapist. Yeah, I'm thinking I gotta read this. <laughs> the positive side of betrayal is that it affirms life. Last season's corn stalks are plowed under and feed the crop that is yet to be. To grow up, a child has to turn away from childhood to betray her life of toys, her sense of family. He can be too loyal. I remember when my son got a girlfriend and he took all the toys in his room and packed them into boxes, hid them, hid them in the corner and then had her over. We, had too lo we, we could be too loyal to our suffering. Sometimes we need also to forget it to betray or neglect even our own knowledge. We can be holders of a private knowledge that a woman has already decided to leave, for example, and we see her husband holding a loaf of bread as if it were a violin, heading toward a warm glow that will not be at the kitchen table when he actually arrives, but which nevertheless has an existence now as he inhales the bread and before he has heard the news. And we see a child running between trees in the twilight with his friend. He ignores the call to dinner, cannot hear anything, cannot see anything but the sound and illumination of his happiness. While we know, we have seen the charts that he will die of leukemia. <laughs> At such a moment, we can find unbearable the juxtaposition of innocence and suffering to come. The thought that the happiness in question is entirely illusory. It can seem that to have our impotent and piercing knowledge is somehow to be an accomplice of pain. Yet from the point of view of an angel, we are all like the man carrying bread, the boy in the twilight. When a child is born, the angel knows that at age five, she will be run over by a truck. As the bride is throwing her bouquet, the angel sees her death in childbirth. It is not that as T.S. Eliot said, humankind cannot bear very much reality, but that it is hard to have the grand view of the angel at the same time as we have the intimate view of the man who wants supper with his family of the boy who wants to run and run forever instead of coming into supper. We have to acknowledge that the man and the child were happy, looking forward to a future that would not be theirs. We have to say that life itself is beautiful before we talk about outcomes. Everything we taste is snatched from death. Our responsibility is to taste it completely. We betray the angel's view because we must. Those we love die, yet we must eat, we must sing, we must love them anyway. That is our job. We may have the angel's view as well as the child's, but not instead of it. When we stop singing, it is our time, and we too go into the dark. The betrayal is pretty um, negative words to me, but from my, what, what I'm hearing his writing, I start seeing this more as a, also the positive side of betrayal. Mm -hmm. 
Can you say more about that? No. How is it? How is it positive? Maybe not a positive, but more like neutral, like uh, necessity. You see why it exists. Kind of interesting that this is the topic because I, I'm trying to figure out how this might. I had a very dear friend who lived in Houston, and his he was I think in this about 75, and his children who lived in various parts of the country, four of them just decided Dad had to move. <laughs> there was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He was divorced, and he just had to move. And he's healthy, happy, getting along fine. But they just said he had to move. And um, they couldn't get him to move. And finally, they said, well, Dad, I'm the son in Ohio. And we really need you to come up here because we need you to help us take care of our two small kids and blah, blah, blah. You'll really be doing us a favor. And so he sells his home and he moves up there. And once he got there, they said, Dad, you're too old to be driving you can't really help us with the kids because you're just too old. And, um, you know, you can come over and you can go to their ball games and stuff, but only if we drive you there. And anyway, so I'm talking to him today and, you know, we're just talking, they betrayed you. I mean, they got you up there under false pretenses and it's, I don't know. I'm just trying to figure out how this fits into this scenario. Um, they got their needs met. Um, because they got him out of the house and where they wanted him to be, but that's know. sad. Yeah, it is sad. I, um, it, my my fifth grade teacher lived by herself till she was one hundred and four, oh. and then her kids decided, oh, she shouldn't be living by herself, and she was doing fine. She was so lovely, and when I'd go visit her, she, she'd put glasses in the, in the freezer so they'd be cold for the Coca-Cola, you know. Just, <laughs> she was so wonderful. And so they moved her to Florida, you know, and they went and picked her up and drove her all the way to Florida. Then they realized they hadn't gotten her safe deposit box. So they drove her back to Illinois, to Chicago, to get her safe deposit box, then drove her back. And, you know, within a few months, I think she died then. Yeah. It was a similar story. Yeah. So she was 30 years older. But. You know, I think that, and he and I were talking about this, I think his task right now is both to grieve, just to feel all the feelings, sort of like this guy is saying, just move into the depths of what you're feeling as a result of how, you know, this has all played out, not in a way you're happy about. And, um, and not only, I mean, and, and to realize you're feeling it, right? Yeah. That's, that's the big challenge, it seems, that we feel a lot of things that we don't know we're feeling them. Yeah. Well, it sort of, I, I told him what Flint said on Tuesday that his mentor, John Gladfelter, said so much of what, so much of what people come in for is, quote, unacknowledged grief. And, so you probably ask as a therapist, what are you feeling? Yeah, and people don't like that often. <laughs> I don't want to know what I'm feeling. I came in here so you'll make it better so I don't have to feel it. No, it doesn't quite work like that. But <laughs> Okay, who's next? Me. What page is it, Danielle, in the PDF? 50. Okay, thank you. We cultivate the feeling of betrayal, embed is its stories in the founding tales of the of our religions because the experience of betrayal is one way that we can release the dark and honor its possibility its possibilities at a slight angle angle. So to speak without quite admitting what we do. The role of victim is a solution to, to the indignities and grief 
of being human, a role that makes us for the time of its duration more than mortal. It is not enough to suffer. There are customs and areas recruitment to the cause and public swooning. Thanks. What we have lost is always our connection to heaven. We have been driven down into matter, making an image of betrayal, worshiping it actually allows us to plunge to go with the dark, desperate, and exhilarated. Well, it's, it's, it's exhilarated. Exhilarated, thank you. While still saving face. When we grasp hold of betrayal, it carries us deeper into night toward despair for the labyrinth that it reveals has no escape and no windows and no one is waiting outside holding the other end of the cord. Yeah, I, I think this is what um, is so frightening about despair is that it seems like there's no other, no one's on the other side. Well, remember last week he talked, about, I think it was last week, he talked about how you don't see the light when you're in, in the middle of the dark. Yeah. And despair would be the same way, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. Oh, here we go. The monster despair. The specific character of despair is precisely this. It is unconscious of being despair by Søren Kierkegaard. Night grows thicker and we sink in our journey to the valley of despair. The descent is almost accomplished now. In despair, we know the stripping away of hope. If we define despair as fundamental ignorance, as Kierkegaard does, then we can imagine it as a kind of fusion with the foggy mass of night, and so an absence of the shapeliness of things. Despair offers no images or shrine. It is inert and motionless, without color or scent. Lisa, how do you connect despair and depression? Is, is despair really a psychological word or more of a literature word? Um, I'm asking you two questions, I guess. Yeah, well, I, I'm sort of struggling with that right now. Um, I, uh, I mean, just off the top of my head, I'd say despair is a feeling. Depression is a mood that gets stuck. Um, or a, a feeling that gets stuck. Um, so I think- this Well, the depression you deal with is a disease too, isn't it? Well, I, I'm, I'm listening to a, a 12 hour thing on internal family systems and um, the CE continuing education thing. And, just today he said something about depression is one of is a manager is to try to keep things from maybe going in I, I i don't know i'm just i'm struggling with this myself because i've struggled depression off and on during my life and i was talking to my therapist that i i don't under i mean i don't see any reason why i have to be depressed if i've processed my feelings appropriately as i have them then i'm not getting stuck in sadness or something, even despair. I mean, who doesn't feel despair sometimes? Mm. There's chemical stuff happening with depression, right? Well, that's, yeah, that's. Where despair might be just a reaction to a situation where you don't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Be, be careful of that 
definition because I was just, you know, it's interesting. I was just looking at a TED talk about depression and uh, a doctor was talking about how she was struggling to get pregnant with her husband and she was falling into a depression. And she talked about how she had been trained to look at it as a disease, but she looked at her particular situation and realized that, that in her case, it was perfectly reasonable to expect that she would be sad. And Well, do you think despair maybe would better describe what she was going through? No, she wasn't hopeless. She was just oh. depressed. <laughs> so be careful. It's sometimes it can be a, a tricky thing. Yeah, I'm, sh I'm sure you're right. Yeah. Lisa wanted to say something. Depression is a conglomeration of symptoms. Um, you know, trouble eating and sleeping, uh, trouble concentrating, increased irritability, withdrawal from social connections, physical restlessness and agitation. There's a whole, you know, it's not just that you feel sad and therefore you're depressed. It becomes it, people have difficulty functioning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Within this amorphous fusion, we do not feel connected. I did not read, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Uh, I can read after you. No, and go on, Trouty. Within, okay, no, sorry. I did read. Yes, 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 you did. You did, you finished. I'm sorry. <laughs> we, we had a long pause, so <laughs> I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, within this amorphous fusion, we do not feel connected to life, but oppressed by its moody swirling. The Buddhist explanation of despair is that it comes from alienation, from not understanding our relationship to the world springs, from not understanding that we have the same nature as the tree, the rocks, and the people around us, kin, friend, and foe. And like them, are sustained by the invisible source. In Christianity, despair appears via the doctrine of original sin as banishment from our true home. In Judaism too, it stems from our condition of exile. The Messiah, the one who is complete, is perpetually arriving, but not quite, not yet quite here. Each tradition shows that despair is a separation from the light and at the same time a fusion with the dark. Despair is a time of waiting, of paralysis, of not time. When we are in its kingdom, we do not distinguish among things. Our experience is incomplete because it is non-experience. It is not anything in particular itself, and neither is it turning into something else. In psychiatric diagnosis, diagnostic manuals, despair is called depression as if it were a weather system. The lists of symptoms describe vegetative signs slowness of speech, inability to attend, indifference to pleasure, as if a person turned into a plant, became passive and rooted, wrapped in a winter fog, lacking animal spirits. The danger in despair is often greatest as a person starts to emerge. Only then does he realize what he has been experiencing is anguish, and only then does he have enough energy to kill himself. Despair is a pit beyond any explanation. Melancholy, midlife anxiety, cr chronic illness are only a part. Such occasions may be present, but then other people experience the same troubles 
and do not fall into despair. So despair is an experience in itself, one of the true moments of life. <coughs> despair is the experience among all others that is incomplete, something <coughs> that has not yet become itself, a creature not yet formed out of murk, the murk and waters. A woman dreamed, I am walking on the edge of a great ocean, but I can hardly see it. There is fog all around. I can barely see my feet on the beach. Perhaps this is the greatest pain, not to have a story, not to have reasons, <coughs> and to have only an image of the lack of images, fog and sea, barely visible. Despair is the point where the descent slows, where we enter the darkness proper in which we are not really falling but drifting. In the abyss, we approach the heart of the night. Innocence has departed. The images that sustained us or con confined us have been broken. The way of life, the compromises and pleasures that we trusted to see us through have vanished and we have fallen into the sick, thickest confusion. The torment and secret gift of despair, the torment and secret gift of deepest night is our next subject. This is very juicy stuff we're talking about here. Yeah, sh should we read more or start this paragraph? Well, how, how many pages is this section? Because we have nine minutes from what we usually. What do you guys think? Yeah, about four pages. I mean, this is very short paragraph and then one, two, three, four, five, six, nine, maybe 10 paragraphs. Yeah, we can keep going. Okay. Died and stained all through with night. Thickest night is fascinating because we are so afraid of it. The terrible intensity of the scent itself can be kind of fulfillment. Men, men wake in a sweet, remembering a battle of 50 years ago, but along with the terror, they can feel secret love of the high tend life of that time when each moment was lived at the edge of death. Much of what we do in the descent can be ex... Um, I lost. There you go. Much of what we do in the descent can be explained only if we recognize that it has its own gravity. The darkness pulls us into itself, it finds its pure form. When the night is, to com is not complete, we are driven to dark darken in further. We are driven to darken it further until we are stained and died all through. Then the dark becomes a kind of lover. We keep company with it for its own sake, learn how to move in its hard, narrowed bed, to find the warmth in it, to let it restore us. We do this by darkening the darkness. Darkening the darkness, if I defer the grief and will diminish the gift. Evan Bond, darkening the darkness need not be done consciously. Um, Daniel, would it be possible to move the text a little bit to the left?
Thank you, that's good. Okay, I'll start from the beginning. Darkening the darkness need not be done consciously. Night will come to us of its own accord, but perhaps it eases us to have a map, to know that whether by fate or by our own act, night deepens and the ordeal of our initiation becomes more thorough. Darkening always has the edge of something uncontrollable about it. This is what makes it terrifying and fascinating. Yet without this edge, it couldn't function. What hasn't really gone down cannot rise. Descent often begins with loss and the realization of mortality. So illness, funerals, and memorials can be the occasions for our darkening. The body's fragility is intimate with its delight and we are driven as if by a duty to discover what kind of dying is right for us and what kind of mourning, mourning is proper for the dead. To do this is part of the work of the dark time. The traditional Buddhism of South Asia takes on this task through a saturation with images of the body's impermanence. The most beautiful of us will soon be wrinkled. Teeth fall out, breasts sag. We end up with prostate surgery and hysterectomies. Students of impermanence go out at night and meditate in graveyards, steeping themselves in the truth that there is, that is evident there. They imagine themselves dying, losing their faculties one by one. They imagine a beautiful partner and then imagine this lovely being, aged, decrepit, dying and rotting. This may sound macabre, but it is undertaken in service of awareness. To dissolve ourselves into the dark loosens us, frees us of our common terror. We develop our attention to such a level that it can hold us in every circumstance, including all the ragged events of the soul's domain, including even the prospect of our own inevitable dissolution. The meditation upon darkening need not be consciously upon darkening need not be consciously intended. Whenever we turn toward the wellspring, we call up the night. A man I know used to go blind <laughs> during meditation retreats. He couldn't see his friends, hands and friends, and friends would have to lead him around for a day until the condition would clear up by itself. <coughs> While finally he found a doctor who gave him a psychological explanation, there is also a certain emblematic beauty to his symptoms. The, the Zen teacher, Kuan Yamada, used to say that by sweeping the mind clear, meditation takes away false blindness and gives us true blindness. Spiritual work brings us down to the foundations of life before it lets us rise. Here's another story of darkening, a memorial service for a young professional woman. Her many friends gathered at her house. Some people did performance pieces some read poems, some talked of a dead woman, almost everyone drank. At one point, her husband grew agitated and began shouting her name, an event both complicated and raw, in which elements of Job-like accusation of God seemed to combine with a movement toward the dead woman. A few of those present became very angry, 
accusing him of ruining the ceremony and also of other old grievances they held. One young woman, one young man lost his temper completely and attacked the widower. A window was shattered. I remember lying on the carpet alongside the grieving man, holding him and shielding him at the same time while he went on murmuring to his dead wife. Almost everyone left, and the few who remained sat on the bed and read Dylan Thomas aloud. This quiet act of attention re-knitted the soul of the evening and transformed its unraveling into something striking, survivable, and even necessary. What had happened to make such disorder? Death had called to the man and he had listened, walking a little way beside it, keeping company with the uncompanionable. It was as if, as if his sorrow had breached the bill between worlds, drawing, drawing the mourners into border place where the deals swirl around and grief is like a high wind. Then with the breaking of the window, the feet that was in everyone passed, the grieving man top, toppled back to the floor and lay there. For the moment, enough of a sacrifice had been made. Thomas' poetry brought a human connections which had seemed frail back again. Darkening, exhilarating, terrifying, takes us farther into hell. Sometimes the irreducible darkness pulls us in. Sometimes we rush toward it in an active and self-destructive fashion. At such a moment, it is as if we can't have enough of it. We want to be saturated in the primeval simplicity of night, of being a mortal body, full of sensation and near to death. Emily, did you use the word juicy? Yeah. Yeah, this, this has really changed my perspective, you know, in terms of... Um, of all the things we do when things are darkening to avoid it. Right. Yeah. You know, even to Lisa, nothing personal, but to go to a therapist, you know, where there's something, I mean, the therapist hopefully could help you realize <laughs> the positive quality of, of being, would that be the right way to say it? The positive, is that what he's saying that it's positive, but at least acknowledging it and, working through it and not turning away from it. But you, you mentioned, Lisa, about people wanting to, to, to get rid of feelings, for example, right? I think people come in not sure what to do with them. They feel overwhelmed. I mean, sort of what he's describing feels, I mean, I've, I mean, I guess we all have been through periods that feel kind of like what he's describing. And, if you don't know what's happening, it's the first time it's scarier. It was for me, like, what the hell's going on here? And you need, sort of, you need Dante, or who, who is it that walked through hell in Dante's Inferno? You sort of need a guide through that. You can't take it away from the person, but you can be there so they're not alone, maybe. I bet a lot of people come to you thinking, you're not the guide, you're the person who will take it away, the pain. And I, I think that's gotten more so the longer I've practiced than it was in the beginning. I don't know if that, what that says about our culture, but maybe just the people I'm seeing. And then there's drugs people do, right? I mean, all kinds of things people do yeah. to get away from the darkening. until they don't work anymore. Okay, so we're...
So what did you come up with? I can say that I'm, <clears throat> I'm struggling with understanding this book and uh, comparing to the previous book by Katagiri. I feel like Katagiri's book, I had trouble to understand because of the concepts. And here I'm struggling probably because of the vocabulary. And uh, so I, I have to, I'm rereading the uh, things we read uh, in the following day, uh, that helps. But it's, but personally, it's, it's difficult for me, yeah. I think it's very helpful to read this together for me. I don't know if I could read this book by myself. And I think it's because he sort of um, takes, pulls from so many different stories and images that it's hard for me to kind of keep track of the direction that he's moving in, which is not really a criticism. It's just that that's how I find the style to be. It's hard for me to like take it all in. Yeah, and I'm also like waiting all the time for his definitions of things that he's talking about. I'm like hoping maybe next paragraph is gonna explain what it means. Uh, He's a poet. So once Robert Frost was asked to explain his poetry and he said, do you want me to tell you an other and worse language? So all this stuff that he's describing is stuff that can't be told with definitions, I think. I mean, I think category is the same way that it's with images and metaphors. But what, what he's kind of invited me to do is to see the despair as, as um, not something to, to just like throw out, but something to kind of relish. Consider. To consider? Mm -hmm. To embrace? I don't know what, what word, but I kind of feel like I, I, I want to feel despair at this moment so that I can see what it's like. <laughs> I want to go there. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> I know. That's a good one. So I can share my piece. And this really came also from this morning. Um, after Zazen, the group meets. And um, so I asked them to talk about what had touched them in the you know previous day or today or something. So I asked them what touched them. They poured their hearts out one by one. Then Jay spoke, touched to tears by their pouring. That seemed supreme as she was absolutely in the moment rather than rehearsing her own story as I was doing. But then Jay brought me to the moment with her experience with what had preceded her. And then I did a drawing. Oops, sorry, wrong button. I gotta get good at this. Okay, so there, there's the drawing. All the other people were on Zoom. <laughs> and then Jay and I were there. It was so amazing, but so uh, how she, uh, what had touched her was everyone else's being touched. Melan, mm -hmm. how are you today? I'm good, thank you. I what do you think of this despair thing? I want to switch with you, your position of despair. Oh, of not being in despair? Yes. 
I, I like a lot this book, uh, probably because of the metaphors and the literature and the quotes that he makes. Um, also, I have to reread it. I was not able to write anything tonight, but I was thinking about you were what you were talking with Lisa in reference to depression and so on. And I was thinking that our culture is made um, to embrace happiness always and happy endings and all that. I, I went to, to walk the other day to this park and there's a lake and it's, it started raining so hard. And um, there was an, what's the name of this bird? This beautiful white bird that is very thin. A dove? Sorry? A dove? I think so, yeah. There were birds there and, and they just stood in the middle of the storm, you know, just waiting for it to happen or I don't know why. And, and I, I was thinking nature and the animals and the wildlife, uh, like uh, when it's raining, they don't, are, they are not scared or, when they're about to die, probably they feel it, but you know, they don't panic and things like that. And well, that was all that I was thinking tonight. I'm, uh, I'm dealing with the mortality of my parents lately. I'm trying to make an effort to visit them more often since I live a, um, a plane ride away from them. And it's, um, it is a very difficult thing to sit and consider their mortality. Um, but I have a sense that if I wait for and just ignore it. And then suddenly I'm confronted by it all at once. It will be too much. So I'm trying to sit with their future and um, I don't know, guess try and participate in it as gracefully as I can. So I also noticed last week that um, I lost someone over 20 years ago and it's been, I still feel it very acutely. And I realized part of that is because I turned away from despair and I, really pushed it down and didn't really didn't know how to like consider it or sit with it and it has taken many many long years for me to finally come to a place where I finally see how to possibly start sitting with that um, so I do feel a sense of hope that that darkness will be lifted. When my um, mother died, I told my daughter and then I was telling her about the stages of grief and that the first one is, is denial. And she said, well, can we just do that? Yeah, you can, but it prolongs the pain, I think. Trouty, do you want to add something? Well, I'm really very exhausted. <laughs> and uh, 
yeah, I am in, in despair. Today, I I was working, packing and, and stuff like that. Um, I've accumulated lots of work, etc. And, you know, lots of books. And all your memories, right? And all my memories, yes. Yeah, it, it was hard to sort of pack up my study of 26 years. And so um, I appreciate that uh, so many of you shared but I would just say, well, yes, today I think I despair. Well, I usually have with me uh, a woman whom I have hired and I suppose it helps that somebody else is there. And we really go at it. Anyway, thank you. Thank you for asking. I want to share something um, from the Satipatthana Sutra. Just a second. Yeah, just back the book. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, here, I'm going to share now. This has been on my mind um, a lot. I think it's, it's, for a long time, it's the most important thing for me that I've read. And how does a monk remain focused on feelings in and of himself? There is a case where a monk, when feeling a painful feeling, discerns, I am feeling a painful feeling. When feeling a pleasant feeling, he discerns, I am feeling a pleasant feeling. When feeling a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he discerns, I am feeling a painful or pleasant feeling. When feeling a pleasant feeling of flesh, he discerns, I am feeling a pleasant feeling of the flesh, and so on. Um, and that seems like such an important step is just just to be uh, cognizant of the fact of what's going on mm -hmm. and and he doesn't i love too that he doesn't say you should do this he said this is this is what a monk does mm -hmm. you know and, and this is a seasoned monk not a a, a new newly ordained monk I am feeling a painful feeling. I, I just think that's, does that seem to connect with what we're reading? Yes. Yeah. I've okay. Forgotten. Oh, go on. Well, I forgot now the uh, title of the movie. I, I think you were showing it, Kim, at some point to a group of us. Uh, it was a fellow, uh, a Westerner, I think he was from UK, who went to uh, Japan and he wanted to learn more about Buddhism. And among the many things that he did, uh, he went to spend a night in the monastery. Do, do you recall that? Yes, and he's sweeping the floor, cleaning the floor. Yes, yeah. but also when when the monk that is assisting him or accompanying him, uh, he is uh, putting a pillow into a pillowcase and getting his bed ready. And so this, this fellow asked, um, what are you thinking now? And the monk answered, I am feeling a um, pillowcase with a pillow 
And then uh, the fellow asked it again, and he said the same thing. He wasn't done yet. You know, <laughs> I don't know, one corner sort of. I, I still remember it. I see, see it very vividly in front of me. And uh, this Western, I was so uh, taken by it. It was almost unbelievable to him that he could stay just in that position that he would be aware only of that thing. This is, this is I mean, I, I wish I could do that. And so um, I bought 36 rolls of toilet paper. And <laughs> the next thing I knew, I opened the cabinet above the toilet and they were all so beautifully stacked in the, in the thing, in the, in the cabinet. And, and I thought, did I do that and not remember that I had done that? And I was, whoever did it, did it just like such a perfect job where the, the rolls were stacked too high and they were exactly above the other one. And I was so impressed with myself if I had done that without even knowing that I'd done that. So I asked Linda and of course she did it. <laughs> <laughs> but I really didn't know if I had done it or not. That's how absent-minded I am. It was really funny, except... There was a signature to it by the way it was done. So I was suspicious, <laughs> but it wasn't me. She got an award in college of being craftsman of the year. So. Oh, very nice. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah. So she, she's pretty good at that kind of stuff. Okay. Well, right. th thank you for uh, Independence Day. Malen, do you guys have any kind of Independence Day? In Mexico? Yes, in September. Oh. September 16, yeah. And what was the year of your independence? Um, 1892. No, 1910, 1910, I'm sorry. Okay. We well, have something to look forward to then. <laughs> do you do fireworks? Yes. Oh, great. <laughs> Not like you, I'm, I, I'm guessing. <laughs> okay. All right. Take care. Thank, Thank you, you, Daniel. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Yes. Bye.